1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled The Blaze Incident. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about Fela the dog, since he is part of today's main story. For those of you not familiar with Fela, he was President Franklin Roosevelt's Scottish Terrier and one of the most famous of all presidential canines. My question for you is quite simple. What was Fela's full name? Was it 1. Falafel Fritters 2. Fela King of the Desert 3. Fa-la-la-la-la-la, 4 Lady Fala of the Lake, or 5 Murray the Outlaw of Fela Hill. Again, what was Fela's full name? Was it 1 Falafel Fritters, 2 Fala King of the Desert, 3 Fa-la-la-la-la-la, 4 Lady Fala of the Lake, or 5 Murray the Outlaw of Fala Hill? And as always, I'll let you ponder over these five choices, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story that I've titled, The Blaze Incident. And this story hit the front pages of the press on January 17th of 1945. With the United States embroiled in World War II at the time, you would think that it would take a story of extreme national importance to grab the front page headlines. So I'll let you judge for yourself as to whether this particular story was truly worthy of all the attention that it received at the time. You see, it had been learned by the press that three U.S. servicemen, all trying to get home on leave, were bumped from their flight aboard an Army transport plane. And that's because a load critical to the war effort needed to be transported aboard this plane in their place. This load was so big that it took up the space of their three seats. And just what could be that urgent? You know, perhaps it was a piece critical to that soon-to-be-created first atomic bomb. Or possibly it was an essential part needed on the front to protect the troops. Or maybe it was critical medical supplies. Well, keep dreaming. None of these ideas are correct. Instead, it was a big, big dog. Make that a gigantic dog. It was one 130-pound, or about 60-kilogram, bull mastiff. And this is just not any bull mastiff. This particular dog, named Blaze, had nothing to do with the war, and it was owned by Colonel Elliot Roosevelt, the second oldest son of then-president Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The timing of this event couldn't have been worse. Elliot was just about to be considered by the Senate for promotion to Brigadier General. His dad was days away from being inaugurated for a record fourth term as Commander-in-Chief, And let's not forget the nasty global war that was on everyone's mind. Now before I tell you more, I must first mention that the military had a letter ranking system for the cargo that it carried. C and D ratings were used for passengers or cargo not considered extremely urgent in nature. As you can imagine, an A classification was for the most critical material for the war effort. White House Press Secretary Stephen T. Early described an A rating as, quote, an emergency so acute that precedence should be given over all other traffic. So, can you guess the rating of Blaze the Dog? If you guessed an A, you are absolutely correct. And just where was this bull massive headed that was just so, so important to the war effort? Believe it or not, it was to the home of Colonel Roosevelt's new bride of 45 days in Hollywood, California. It was to the home of movie actress Faye Emerson. Now, she's basically forgotten today, but Emerson was a superstar on 1950s television and was best known at the time for her controversial plunging necklines. Emerson is credited as having the first wardrobe malfunction ever ever on live television, and that's long before the famous Janet Jackson incident. Now, one of the men bumped off the flight by the dog was 18-year-old Seaman First Class Leon Leroy. He was a gunner on a Navy tanker, and upon his arrival back in New York on January 9th of 1945, he learned that his dad had passed away on December 6th, and he asked his superiors if he could take some time off, to visit his grieving mother in Antioch, California. An emergency leave was granted and Leroy hopped aboard an Army cargo plane in Newark, New Jersey, and he headed west. When the plane reached Dayton, Ohio, 22 men with a D priority were bumped from the flight as cargo with a higher priority was loaded aboard. This included the crate that contained Blaze the Dog. Three men with a C rating which included Leon Leroy, were allowed to stay aboard. Everything seemed to be going fine for the three men until a plane touched down in Memphis, Tennessee on January 11th. Apparently there was a backlog of B-priority freight sitting there that needed to be loaded, and this necessitated the removal of some of the lower-priority cargo. When an unidentified army lieutenant examined the various priorities, the three men ranked at the bottom and they were booted from the plane. They protested loudly that the dog was allowed to stay aboard, but as they say, the rules are the rules. And here's where it really gets interesting. Leon Leroy was forced to hitchhike from Memphis to Dallas, Texas, but somehow he lost his leave papers during all that commotion back in Memphis. So he was picked up by the military police in Little Rock, Arkansas, and they held him as a prisoner for two days until they received a telegram from his superior officer that cleared up the situation. He then had to enlist the help of the Red Cross to get his new papers, and they were the ones that leaked the story to the press. The second man kicked off the plane was Sergeant David Axe of Riverside, California. After 30 months of duty in the Pacific, he was granted an emergency leave after learning that his wife was very ill. The third man was a Navy Seabee, but he was never personally identified in the press. Yet another man, a guy named Maurice Nix, had also been on emergency leave and had just completed a visit to his sick wife and four children. Attempting a return to his assigned duty station on the West Coast, he was prevented from boarding his plane at Dallas. He learned that this was because he had a D-travel designation and that a huge mastiff already aboard had priority above him. As a result, Nix was forced to borrow $100 from the Dallas Red Cross to purchase a ticket aboard a commercial airliner to get back to his base on time. When the news first broke, everyone was in complete denial. There was no one in the military, no one in the White House that seemed to know how this could happen. The press caught up with Faye Emerson while she was on a train to Chicago, which was ultimately bound for Washington, D.C., and that was to go to her father-in-law's fourth inauguration. And she was completely caught off guard, and she was clearly embarrassed by the whole situation. Faye was quoted as saying, I assure you that my dog travels his freight and awaits his turn. Clearly, she had not read that day's newspaper. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt also questioned the story, quote, I'm perfectly sure that is not true. She added, I can't imagine any plane dispatcher who would be as stupid as that. Mrs. Roosevelt continued, no Army cargo plane would put a seaman off for that reason. Members of Congress, particularly those in the opposing Republican Party, were quick to chime in with some asking to have those responsible court-martialed and for Elliot Roosevelt to be kicked out of the military. As you would expect, hearings were held on Capitol Hill and very quickly other abuses to the system were brought to light. That includes a skilled army technician who was bumped off of a flight because a higher priority was given to a case of whiskey. And then there was a story of a superintendent who had a lower priority than the group of workers that he was in charge of. As a result, the superintendent was bumped from the flight and the workers were sent ahead. They had to wait 10 days for the superintendent to fly in and tell them what to do. They just stood around and did nothing waiting for him to arrive. Basically, and this should come as no surprise to anyone, it was discovered that if you could offer a tip or a bribe, your cargo could be given a higher priority on these cargo planes. But after a thorough investigation, that was determined not to be the case for the Blaze incident. Instead, here's how it all went down. Blaze and another puppy, along with Elliot Roosevelt, left England on November 13th for Presque Isle, Maine. And from there, a few days later, they took a B-25 to LaGuardia Field, which is now known as LaGuardia Airport. A Marine Corps pilot then flew the dogs to Washington, D.C., The White House was called, and they sent a station wagon out to pick up the dogs. Elliot Roosevelt eventually returned to England and, according to press secretary Early, left instructions to fly the dog to his wife, quote, when there was an empty bomber available. It was Elliot's sister, Anna Roosevelt-Bodiger, that made the shipping arrangements. You see, on January 5th, she called Colonel Ray W. Ireland, who was the Assistant Chief of Staff for Priorities and Traffic at ATC, that's Air Transport Control, and said that the dog needed to be shipped. Ireland just happened to have been a former manager for United Airlines, and when he was appointed to this position, Secretary of War Henry L. Stinson said that Ireland would, quote, speed the flow of manpower and materials into all phases of the war effort. And he clearly did that when he personally made the decision to give Blaze the dog an A priority. It turns out that Elliot's sister never made any such request. Ireland just did it because he thought that was a nice and proper thing to do. Now you would think that since they had finally gotten to the root of this whole mess, that this would have been the end of the Blaze incident. But it wasn't. Fast forward to November 30th of that same exact year. President Roosevelt had died, World War II had finally ended, and the world was now at peace. But a battle among two canines had erupted back on the home front. Faye Emerson got this crazy idea that it'd be great if Blaze met the late president's famed Scottish terrier, Phala, at the Roosevelt's estate in Hyde Park, New York. Now, I'm not sure how Blaze got to New York from Hollywood, but I'm quite certain that it wasn't as priority seating aboard military aircraft. Let's just say the idea of pairing up a giant bull mastiff with a petite terrier is not a good idea. During their first encounter, Blaze leapt out of the vehicle he was in and attacked Fella, but was quickly pulled away. Their second encounter the next morning went even worse. Blaze tore into Falla, and it was only through the intervention of an unnamed bystander who repeatedly pounded Blaze's head with a rock, that Falla was not killed. Falla was rushed to a nearby veterinary hospital, suffering from a loss of blood. Stitches were needed to repair the numerous tears and bites made to his body. Falla did make a full recovery and died naturally on April 5th of 1952 just two days shy of his 12th birthday. He had a nice long life. Blaze's sudden aggressiveness left Elliot Roosevelt with no choice but to put the dog to sleep. His remains were checked for rabies, but the tests came back negative. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide.
0: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
1: And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. Mm
0: Hmm, good, Mm hmm, good. That's what Campbell soups are. Mm Hmm, good. Campbell soups invite you to meet Corliss Archer, starring Janet Waldo. Hello, Corliss. You see him on top of the world? Oh,
1: I am, Mr.
0: Charbis, on account of those perfectly divine clothes. Clothes? Mm-hmm. What clothes? My back-to-school wardrobe, of course. Oh. Mom took me shopping yesterday, and we got the most precious things. There was one
1: little green dress with cap sleeves and all studded with gold nail heads, and a luscious corduroy suit, and a
0: new raspberry sweater, and, of course, the best thing of all was the soup. Oh uh,
1: yeah, a uh, soup. Well, what on earth is
0: soup doing in the middle of your wardrobe? Oh, Mr. Sharbert, you're so diverting, honestly.
1: It wasn't in the middle of my wardrobe. It was afterwards. After we'd been shopping, I mean. Oh, I see. It was Louise's day out, and Mum had to get Daddy's dinner, and she wanted it to be something he specially likes, and that. Oh, means... whoa well there, Corliss. Let me guess. Campbell's chicken noodle soup, hmm? Mr. Sharbert, you are positively psychic. Yes, Campbell's chicken noodle soup. <laughs> That soup is so good; it makes a main dish that's simply terrific and ready in a jiff. Oh my goodness, that's poetry!
0: Well, not only that, Corliss, it's true. There's no main dish that's more tempting or quicker to fix than Campbell's chicken noodle soup.
1: You're so right, Mister Sharbot. Bye now. Bye. That commercial for Campbell's chicken noodle soup is from the August 11th, 1946 episode of Meet Corliss Archer and it was titled Ideal Babysitters. The show ran on radio from January 7th of 1943 to September 30th of 1956. Corliss Archer also made the jump to television, movies, and comic books, although somewhat unsuccessful in these other formats. Chicken noodle soup was originally named Chicken Soup with Noodles, and it was a poor seller for Campbell's. Then, one night in 1934, actor Freeman Gosden, who played the part of Amos Jones on the hit radio show Amos and Andy, accidentally misread his script and blurted out Chicken Noodle Soup instead. Somehow, that slight change in name caused a sudden interest in the product, and the sales skyrocketed. Today, it is among their best-selling soups. And just one more little bit of trivia before we move on. The crimson and white can colors that are so distinct to the Campbell's brand, they were adopted in 1889 to honor the Cornell University football team. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the Weird Past. And today's stories all have one thing in common. They're all about people that are lucky be alive. One man that had luck on his side was 19-year-old Royal Canadian Air Force radio technician Al Richards on December 1st of 1951. I just happened to be recording this on December 1st so this is an anniversary. On December 1st of 1951 he was literally sucked out of his boots at what was then Renfrew Airport in Glasgow, Scotland. At the time, Richards had been standing underneath the jet engine of a Sabre fighter, checking its radio. It was nothing out of his ordinary routine, and when break time came, he ran alongside the plane and. well, he's not exactly sure what happened after that. His guess is that he slipped on the tarmac, and the next thing you know, All that's there is Richard's boots. They were standing straight up about five feet from the engine, and he was gone. The pilot felt the thump of Richard's body being sucked into the engine, and he immediately throttled back. Richard's was pulled out before the engine had stopped spinning. His raincoat and hat had been ripped right off his body, and his uniform was shredded to pieces. But he was still intact and he was unconscious. He was taken to nearby Southern General Hospital and given a thorough examination. 120 x-rays were taken, but his injuries were minor. Richards had two torn ligaments in his right leg, two black eyes, some cuts and bruises, and one big, big smile on his face in all of the press photos that were taken of him. And our next story occurred on March 24th of 1960 in Pullman, Washington. It seems that Fred L. Markley, who was an electrician at Washington State University, had obtained some sand from the Kuski, Idaho area, and he believed that it contained gold. Instead of panning it or using some other laborious method for getting the gold out, Markley decided to do a little bit of home chemistry. He obtained some mercury, and I'm guessing that's from the mercury thermometers that were so common back then, and mixed the sand and the mercury over a flame, and that was in an attempt to get the gold to stick to the mercury. When a neighbor stopped by the next night to see how things were going, she was shocked by what she found. She said, quote, when I walked in, Mrs. Markley was gasping and in a near coma, and the two boys were turning green. Clearly, Mr. Markley had planned for extracting ample amounts of gold from his sand, but he had not anticipated producing ample amounts of toxic mercury fumes. The family was rushed to the hospital and given British anti which removes heavy metals such as mercury, arsenic, and lead from the body. At the time that the story was reported, the Markleys were expected to make a full recovery but the city health department was trying to figure out how to decontaminate their home. And our last tidbit for today occurred on July 19th of 1962 in Marson Mills, Massachusetts, where it was reported that 20-year-old Lois Ann Frotton had survived a nearly fatal skydiving accident. Her jump started out fairly routinely, at about 2,000 feet or 610 meters, she leapt out of the airplane for what would be her first jump. She was quoted as saying, For a few seconds I had a wonderful free feeling while falling. Ms. frotten added, I thought I had gotten out of the plane all right. I thought I had made a good jump. But then I realized my foot was caught in the sleeve of the parachute. She did have a safety chute, but she didn't have the strength to pull a cord to open it. As a result, she tumbled end over end, and witnesses on the ground said that the entangled sleeve of the parachute disengaged somewhere between 100 and 150 feet that's 30 and 45 meters above the Earth's surface. That allowed the chute to partially open and slowed her down a bit. This allowed her to strike the surface of a lake, feet first. Ms. Fratten was then rushed to a hospital in Hyannis, but found to only suffer from two minor fractures of small bones in her spine, along with a cut to her nose and some bruises. She was very lucky to be alive. At the time, I
0: only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin binging and purging over and over and over.
1: Evaluate
0: you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go.
1: This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I
0: feel like we do that in life, too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please
1: join me wherever you listen to podcasts. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked what was Fala's full name? Was it one, Falafel Fritters? Two, Fala King of the Desert? Three, Falala, la, la, la Four, Lady Fala of the Lake? Or five, Murray the Outlaw of Fala Hill? The answer was the last one, Murray the Outlaw of Falla Hill, named after John Murray, a famous Scottish ancestor, which they eventually shortened to Falla. Falla was born on April 7th of 1940 and was given to the president as an early Christmas gift by his cousin Margaret Suckley, who would also care for Falla much of the time after the president had passed on. While Roosevelt was running for his fourth term as president, Rumors started to spread that he had inadvertently left Fala behind on some island in the Aleutians. As commander-in-chief, Roosevelt had supposedly dispatched a destroyer at some incredible expense to the nation, and that was during a period of war to go pick up the dog. On September 23rd of 1944, he gave his famous Fala speech, which you can see on YouTube, and I do encourage you to watch it and he skillfully squelched all of the accusations made by his opponents. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart, both written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and from your local library. You can post comments and find some of my research materials on Facebook. That's www.facebook.com useless information That's all one word useless information podcast. You can also email me at useless at That's useless at And lastly, you can visit my webpage at uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. Well, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye.